It's good to be back. I've been out for a few weeks myself. Um, I took a few weeks off in January, just to let you know what I've been doing. Blake and Matt and I have been working on writing a Bible study for NAB Press. It's a real fun project. We're doing three character studies. Uh, We're just wrapping up the third one, Daniel, and uh, those are going to be published in October. So that's been a real fun uh, project for us and a nice break for me. I want to thank Joel and uh, Brad and uh, others, uh, Kevin filled in for me and Jacob. Uh, it's kind of nice for me actually to get to sit and listen to somebody else bring the word of God. I kind of get tired of myself speaking, listening to myself. So it was fun. love listening to Joel. So uh, we're going to be back in the book of Romans this week. And what we're going to do is, since we've been out of Romans for a while, we're going to do a review. Next week will be Romans 7. This week we're going to cover a review of all of Romans 1 through 6. Great way to review is a pop quiz. So we're going to do a pop quiz this morning. So I'm serious. Take out a piece of paper and a pencil or your smartphone. Got seven questions. Most of these can be answered in three words or less, so we won't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, The first is, what is Romans about? What's the big idea? What's the theme? Second, what is wrong with the world? And who is responsible for it? Define justification. Fifth, is God's grace free or costly? Sixth, why shouldn't justified people sin? Now, that may take you a few more words, but Paul gives two pretty specific reasons in Romans 6. And then why are we still here? If we have been justified, why did God leave us on the planet? You may have a lot of reasons for that. Uh, Paul gives one very specific one in Romans chapter 1. So uh, I'll give you a few minutes, fill those out. I'm not going to collect the answers, right? Because, you know, if you did really well, I'd feel proud. And if you did poorly, I'd be depressed, and I don't want to feel either of those things this morning. So just work through it, and uh, I'll just give you a couple minutes, and we'll get to it, and we'll review. Husbands and wives, you can work together. I know that's how decisions are actually made, so (laughs) one score per family is fine. Okay, everybody done? All right, close enough. We'll move on. What's Romans all about? What's the big idea? Men, have you ever been in a conversation with a woman? Could be your wife, sister, mom, uh, girlfriend, daughter. Could be, could be any woman. You thought you were talking about one thing? And then, you know, sometime in the conversation you realize, no, that's not the topic at all. You're talking about something else. Wives, have you ever been in a conversation with your husband or maybe, you know, a, a son or brother, whatever, and... Um, all of a sudden you realize that that, that man is actually on a topic that you were talking about an hour ago or, or maybe just 30 seconds ago and you, he doesn't realize that you're actually, you've already changed topics. I feel like he's just got one drawer open at a time and you know, you've closed that drawer and you've moved on to the next drawer. Men, you feel like every drawer in the dresser is open and it's about to fall over on you, right? Have you ever felt that? Well, Romans is kind of like a conversation with Paul. And as we're entering in this conversation, like uh, many conversations, we uh, like to read ourselves into the conversation. We're the, kind of the center or the point of the conversation. Uh, that can happen with Romans. But Romans is not about us first. Okay? Romans is about God. Romans is about the character of God. Uh, Romans is a, is a very Trinitarian book. You see, God the Father as the sovereign. He is righteous and he is in control. You see God the Son as the sacrificial redeemer. 
And God the Spirit is the supernatural enabler. Father, Son, and Spirit all figure very prominently in the book of Romans. Romans is about God. It's about God's character. Specifically, Romans is about the righteousness of God. Uh, And if you'll recall, when we discuss this concept of righteousness, the basic idea means conforming to a standard. Meeting the standard. And God's character, his nature, and his personality is the standard itself, and God always measures up. So, all that God is, and all that God does, is right. According to the standard. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 32, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright, is he. Notice the synonyms he uses here. Uh, he is perfect. His ways are just. He is faithful. He is without injustice. He's righteous and he's upright. Everything that God is, everything that God does, is right. Or as the psalmist wrote, for the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. Now, the theme of the book of Romans is stated in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Read with me there. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous person shall live by faith. Or in other words, uh, you can look at the book of Romans basically as an extended uh, vindication of the character of God. It's an extended vindication of the, of the righteousness of God, his character and his works. First section, after Paul introduces the book in verses 1 through 17, major section 118 through 320, is demonstrating that God is righteous in judgment. And when he uh, condemns sin and judges sin and punishes sin, God is right to do so because he is perfectly holy and just. He cannot just look, overlook sin. He must condemn sin. God is righteous in judgment. Paul talks about that for three chapters. Second, God is righteous in justification. So even though he condemns all under sin, because he's punished sin in Jesus Christ, he can declare us righteous and not violate his own righteousness. He can declare sinful people to be in right relationship with him. God is righteous in justification. Third, God is righteous in sanctification. That is, not just declaring sinful people to be in right relationship with him, but making those justified people conform to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, or making them more like him, more righteous. That is sanctification. Justification is an event. Sanctification is a process. Fourth, God is righteous in history. God has always been a God who makes promises. And particularly, he made a lot of promises to the Jews. And it would be easy for the Jews in Paul's day, and I would argue even the Jews today, to say, wait a second, God, you made so many promises to us, but it seems like we are outside the realm of your promises now. It seems that you are not faithful to your promises, or you are not righteous. You're not doing right by us. And so what Paul demonstrates in Romans 9 through 11 is, no, God is right in all of his acts in history, in all the promises he's made, The promises he has kept and the promises he will keep, God does right by mankind, Romans 9 through 11. And then fifth, God is righteous in our lives. In other words, God is transforming us into his character 
so that through us, as believers in Jesus Christ, he can manifest his righteousness, his character to the world. So five parts. Book of Romans is about God. It's about the righteousness of God. Second, what is wrong with the world? What's wrong? What's broken? Uh, In case you hadn't noticed, we are in the middle of the uh, political season, which uh, I I enjoy watching uh, debates and I like hearing these political speeches. Sometimes it's a little depressing, but sometimes it's just very entertaining uh, listening to to these candidates Uh, because, you know, what they do is they go throughout the primary state, the particular state, and uh, they tell all of us what's wrong with the world, right? And they know. Uh, Each of them knows exactly what's wrong. And uh, apparently all of America agrees right now that what's wrong with the world is the economy, right? Everybody apparently is going to vote based upon uh, their pocketbook. Which candidate can best set me up financially? It's the biggest issue. The economy's broken. A lot of unemployment still. Um, Seems like maybe we're still in recession. Not sure. But it doesn't look good. Why is that? It seems like one of the issues is there's not enough energy. It's not enough oil and it's not cheap enough and we need to go drill more and we need to pipe it from Canada down here or whatever. We need to find cheap oil, right? Drill, baby, drill. The problem is the economy and we don't have enough oil. Or maybe the problem with the economy is uh, all of these natural disasters. We have drought in Texas, but we have flooding in other areas in the south. Maybe that's what's putting us under. And if we just had enough money we'd all be fine, right? We do have other problems too, though. There, there's disease and sickness, and we don't have adequate health care or health insurance. We need to fix that. We've also got bad people in other places in the world, and they're terrorizing us. That's bad, okay? We've got bad people here too, and they're doing bad things to us too, and we've got problems with crime. Education, if we could just educate ourselves enough, right, that'd be the solution. So every candidate has a solution, whether it's drilling more or lower taxes or better education or technology or better foreign policy to deal with terrorism or uh, securing our borders or, or better criminal justice system. All these things are solutions to the problem, right? Or problems. And each candidate is the only one who's got the solutions. Now, interestingly, though, in the debates, I've never once heard the word sin. <laughs> and I think that'd be so fun to watch a debate and have one of the candidates say, well, you know, really... The problem's not the economy. The problem's sin. Of course, he wouldn't get elected. But it would be very entertaining and true and accurate to hear it. What's broken in the world is a result of sin being introduced in the world. Very simple word, but if you read your Bible, there are a lot of words, scores of words that God uses to describe sin. There's iniquity and transgression and trespass and offense, all kinds of words, because it's such a big issue and it's really the fundamental issue. The world is broken because of sin. I'm not saying that there's a certain group of Texas farmers or ranchers who sinned and that's why there's drought. I'm not saying that there's a one-to-one correspondence, but I'm saying there's drought generally or scarcity or famine or flooding in the world Because sin was introduced into the world. That's the problem. Now, who's responsible? Who is responsible? Well, again, I'll take you to the political arena. (laughs) It's the other guy. It's the other party. They're responsible for droughts and floods and everything else and poor economy. That's human nature. We, We point to the other person, right? Who's responsible? 
Well, it's Satan, right? Satan introduced sin into the world. Or is it Adam and Eve? Because Adam and Eve, they said yes to the temptation. Remember when we were first teaching uh, our son, who's now 10, but this was, he was really little, maybe three, we were teaching him about sin and why he was sinning and struggling with sin. And we talked about the garden and Adam and the fall and that, that nature, that propensity to say, no, I'm going to live in rebellion against God and my parents. That came from Adam. And he stood on that for about three days. You know, and three days later, he came back to me and said, Daddy, someday in heaven when I see Adam, I'm going to pop him in the nose. <laughs> Paul says, you can't blame just Adam. can't lay it on Adam's doorstep. Uh, instead, Paul spends a lot of time explaining that we are responsible. So also, I'd love to hear in a debate you know, sin's the problem and woe is me. Wouldn't that be great? Candidate said that. I'm a part of the problem. Paul goes through in Romans uh, chapters one through three and he points to every group of people. He says the immoral people, that's a problem. They're under the condemnation of sin. Self-righteous people, they're under the condemnation of sin. Uh, Jews who think that they should be the solution to the problem, well, they're part of the problem too. Okay, Everybody's part of the problem. Read to me Romans chapter three and verse 10. Paul sums it up. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. There's none that meets the standard. No one measures up. Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. In verse 23, his summary statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. Why? That's what we're helping our son really wrestle through. Why is it that everyone, in fact, sins? Paul says, because we are all sinners by nature. We don't become sinners when we commit that first sin. We're born into this world with something, it's, it's just born into us that we will try to live independently from God. That's what Adam's sin explains. Adam's sin is not an excuse for us and our particular sins, but Adam's sin explains why every single person on the earth will sin. He says in chapter 5, verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many were made sinners. Uh, or as he summarizes in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, In Adam all die. In Adam, all are born dead or born separated from God. And as a result of being separated from God, all will sin. That's our nature. Uh, I had a a friend who, when he had his his first baby, he came to me and he said, when do you start this process of disciplining your children? When do you begin to see their will emerge? And I said, well, uh, when you change your son's diaper, does he arch his back and fight against you? He goes, yeah, he does. I said, that's the will. That's sin, man. And I'm not saying it's time to start discipline and, you know, give him time out or (laughs) take away his plastic keys. I'm just saying (laughs) that's just human nature in a a little package right there because uh, your son is messed up. he's, He's messy. He's dirty. And only you can clean him up and fix him. And still he's going to fight against it. Even though you're the solution to his problem. 
He won't acknowledge his problem, won't admit his problem, and won't come to you for help with that problem. <laughs> That's us and God, right? Okay, it's just a little package, but tell me, believe me, it's going to expand, right? <laughs> That's human nature because we were born in Adam. And Paul says bad news about that is the consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Okay, the wages of sin, all sin, any sin, is death. And death is a really important concept theologically for Paul in Romans, but really throughout the Bible. The basic concept means separation. It doesn't mean cessation. It doesn't mean annihilation. It means separation. Okay? And Paul talks about three different forms of separation or death. The first is physical death. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. That is separation of body from spirit. Physical death. Which, by the way, is an unnatural state for humans. We were born uh, body and spirit, and that's natural for us. To be a, a disembodied spirit, to be dead, is an unnatural state for a human. And so just because everyone dies in our experience, everyone will die, we think it's natural, but it's not. It's not, not natural. It's not God's uh, perfect will. It's not his best. Death is an unnatural thing. Sep- physical death, separation of body and spirit. That's why we hate it so much. Why it causes fear. There's also eternal death, which is uh, eternal separation of a person from God. The person who says, no, God, I'm going to remain alienated and separate from you. I'm going to remain living independent from you. And a person who physically dies in that state is forever granted his or her wish, and they're eternally separated. That's what hell is. It's eternal separation from God. Paul talks about that in Romans 2, verse 5. Third, he talks about a life experience of death. For non-believers in chapter 1, and then even believers can experience this in Romans 6. Look at me in chapter 1 again in verse 18. Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on, next uh, 18 through 32, and describes the experience of, of death in people's lives, of brokenness, broken relationships, broken bodies. God's wrath is revealed by allowing people to experience the consequence of sin. He ordered the universe in such a way that it only works according to his righteousness. When people fight against that, eventually they experience uh, the passive wrath of God, that is God gives them over to the consequence of sin. And he says that's a lifetime experience of death. If you look at Romans chapter 6, it says even believers can experience this. Those whose eternal destiny is secure, but give in to temptation, say no to God's sovereignty in their lives. Even genuine believers can experience this separation or alienation from fellowship with God. Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So whoever sins is a slave of sin. And slavery is an experience, so to speak, of death. So Paul spends a lot of time, Romans uh, really first three chapters, talking about this experience of death and what death means. And we walked all the way through that, Romans 1 through 3, spent a lot of time on condemnation. Chapter 3, verse 21, we turn a corner and we talk about the doctrine of justification. What is justification? 
I remember when I was uh, growing up, I heard a definition of justification just as if I'd never, never sinned. You ever heard that before? Uh, if you have, forget it. It's a terrible definition. Right? It's not just as if I'd never sinned. Because in fact, God takes into account all of our sins. And having punished them in Christ, he can rightly declare us righteous. So it's not ignoring our sins. Instead, justification means to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. Read with me in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 21. Romans 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So what is justification? Well, specifically, it's a legal term. It's a courtroom image that Paul is drawing upon, and it means to be in right standing. The judge can declare the accused to be acquitted of the crime or to be in right standing with the court and with the law. So when Paul talks about justification, he's not talking about our behavior, so to speak, or our character, but our standing with God. Are we in right standing with God? And what he says is justification is instantaneous. The moment we believe God declares us to be in right relationship with him, it happens like that. Uh, Sanctification is a lifetime process. Justification happens in a moment, the moment that we believe. Also, it is irrevocable. Once God has made the declaration and we are in right relationship with him, it is a promise, it is a covenant, and God doesn't break it. So we have uh, lived our lives, let's say up to the age 18, and we have lived in sin, believe in Jesus Christ, He declares us righteous, and the sin that is forgiven is not just 0 through 18, but it's all the rest of the sin that we will commit. So we don't get further down the road, commit a sin, and God says, "Ah, you've got to come back to me again to be placed in right relationship. No, the moment you believed, I declared you righteous because on the cross, Christ paid for all of your sins. It's irrevocable. It's irrevocable. So God's grace, is it free Or is it costly? What do you think? God's grace is free. Mm, God's grace is costly. Well, most people didn't want to vote. (laughs) And those who did were very hesitant. Uh, My favorite kind of question is both, of course. Right? It's both free and costly. God's grace is free to us. Costly to God. Again, read with me Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 24. Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And notice what he says here in verse 24. We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption or the purchase that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, the faithful work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Grace is by definition free to the recipient. Okay? Uh, in other words, it's not a discount. Grace is not a discount. 
It's not God has played part of it and then you need to step in and pay the remainder. Even God has paid the majority and you need to pay a portion. No, it's Jesus paid it all. Right? That's God's grace. Not a discount. It's not a loan. Okay? I'm going to justify you, but you're going to need to pay it back. You need to, you're going to need to prove that you are righteous enough to be worthy of my payment. It's not a loan. It is Jesus paid it all. And so he uses this word specifically gift, which means something that is of no cost to the recipient. All the cost was paid by Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And how do you receive a gift? By faith. Okay, you just say, thank you. That's what it means to believe. That's what John means. John chapter 1, verse 12. To believe is to receive. It's to say, God, thank you. I cannot do it on my own. I cannot even contribute to what Christ has done. I accept And I encourage you, if you have never said to God, God, thank you for paying it all in Jesus Christ, that you do so this morning. Free to us. Costly to God. Grace is not cheap. It is free and costly. Free to us, costly to God. Paul uses an important theological term here in 325. He says he's the propitiation. That is, he's the satisfaction of the wrath of God. God to be just. And the justifier must punish sin, but he must punish it in someone other than the one who committed the sin so that he can declare us righteous. So propitiation means he poured out all of his wrath, just wrath, against our sin on a substitute that is Jesus Christ. So Jesus paid it all as the substitute for us, the propitiation for our sins. And I urge you, if you have not said, God, thank you that you satisfied all of your wrath against my sin in Jesus Christ, I accept. I urge you to do so this morning. For those of you who have believed in Jesus Christ, uh, if you've been around Grace for a while, maybe you've noticed that every week I present the gospel. Okay, it always fits in every message. If it doesn't, I'm just going to force it. And you're going to hear the gospel, right? And if you've already believed, this is not your moment to check out. Say, okay, I got that down. This is your moment to think about friends and family who don't know Jesus Christ and to pray for them, okay? It's your moment to, to engage with me in spiritual warfare on their behalf and pray that God's spirit would break through and they believe in Jesus. Pray for the people sitting around you in a group this size. There are always at least a few folks who it just hasn't clicked yet. They haven't understood that Jesus just didn't die for the world. He died for me. And so when I begin, I launch into the gospel. That's when I want you to pray. You don't have to bow and pray and you know, show everybody that you're justified already. Just, you know, just, just pray. Just sit there and say, God, I plead with you for maybe it's a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a child. That your spirit would break through and they would believe. I promise you, every week I'm going to present the gospel. And if I don't, you can come and rebuke me. Remind me. Don't miss that opportunity. Okay? So... God's grace, free or costly? Yeah, it's both. Sixth question, why shouldn't justified people sin? Probably a lot of reasons, but in Romans 6, Paul gives two. He actually uh, structures his chapter around two rhetorical questions that give an answer to this, 1 through 14, and then 15 through 23, and his answers are these. First, uh, because we don't have to. Don't sin because you don't have to. With me, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Uh, in, In other words, as we discussed, to remain or to continue in sin means to stay under the realm and the domination of sin. Paul says, that's not necessary. In fact, the reason Christ died was to rescue you from the domain of sin. And since you are now in the domain of Jesus Christ and not in the domain of Adam and sin and death, you can choose righteousness. And you don't have to say yes to sin. You can say yes to God. So do it. Therefore, present your bodies as a slave to righteousness, not a slave to unrighteousness, because you can. He starts here with an issue of identity. You are now in Christ. You have been baptized into him, which means you have been identified with Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're not only justified, but you are now free from the necessary obligation to say yes to sin. You can now say yes to righteousness. That's his first answer. Second answer. He says, don't sin because sin hurts. Sin damages you. And since you don't have to say yes, don't say yes. And don't experience the harm of sin. Chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning you were under no necessary obligation to righteousness because you were in the domain and realm of sin. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which now you are ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the end, eternal life. Okay? Sin always leads to some form of death. It always harms us. It always enslaves us. And since we don't have to say yes, don't say yes. What we're going to move into in chapter 7 is uh, the beginning of the application of these principles. In chapter 6, he says, stop presenting yourselves or making yourselves available as weapons of unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness to God. Okay, present yourself to God. How do you do it? How do you present yourself or make yourself available to God? Uh, For the Jew, their first thought would be through the law. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. The law brings death and you're also free from the law. You don't have to go down that path any longer. Instead, it is through the spirit when you walk according to the spirit. That's chapter seven, free from the law. Chapter eight, walk according to the spirit and all the benefits and blessings of the spirit. That's where we're going uh, in the next few weeks. Seventh question, why are we here? <sighs> Having been justified, why didn't God just take us home? Why, I mean, why are we still here and struggling and battling. Why? Um, if you've ever read anything by uh, Victor Frankl, I encourage you to read some of his writings. He was a, a prisoner of war under the uh, Nazis. He was in several of their, their death camps, and particularly he was in Auschwitz. And while he was there, he observed human behavior, you know, his own experience of suffering and torture, and he watched others and how they responded, and some who, who persevered and some who gave up in despair. And uh, when he got out, he became uh, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and he developed a theory. Very simple theory, but very profound. Uh, according to his theory, basically the greatest human need is meaning. His final book was Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning. And what he observed in others and in himself was if he had a reason why, he could put up with almost any suffering experience. 
But it was when the, the why disappeared, there was no hope. The people despaired and they gave up and they died. I think that's right on track. Why are we here? The world will tell us um, it's pleasure. Get, get all you can. Accumulate all you can. There's money and stuff and experiences. Uh, Apostle Paul would agree. He said, if there's no resurrection, all the stuff we're talking about isn't true, well then eat, drink, and be merry. Because all you have is what you've got right now. So experience all you can. Grab it all. Uh, I, I will tell you, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tim Tebow. Huge fan. I, I love that young man. He's amazing. Remarkable. I'm praying for him every day. Well, I love the fact that he can uh, look his coaches and players in the eye and say, football is just a game. The NFL is it's a hobby. You know, it, it's a, he, he can stand there and say that to guys who live for Sunday. And then he can run out on the field and sacrifice his body, uh, you know, to win the game and for the good of the team and still step off and say, it's just a game. It's just a game. And there's no pretense about him. He's just doing his thing and it's driving the media crazy. I love it. You know, I love it. Whether he succeeds or whether he fails, I pray that he continues to honor Christ. What's the answer? Why are we here? To pray and to worship? Those are critical. But you know that someday we'll be in the presence of the Lord and we will worship and talk to God much more effectively than we do it now. So why didn't God uh, just snatch us, having justified us so that we could go and worship? Well, that's so that we could bear witness for him. Hey, Paul is very clear. It's to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, why why are we here? Why are we gathering? We're gathering so that we can worship and pray and encourage one another on to greater holiness so that When you walk out of here, you will bear witness for Jesus Christ in your words and in your deeds so that others can come to faith in Christ. That's why the church hasn't been rescued yet out of a broken world. Listen to Paul's words, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. He says, I am under obligation, literally I'm a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, to every person who's on the earth, I'm in debt. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Uh, Flip over the book of Philippians with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says it so clearly in Philippians. Philippians 1, verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. See what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, man, I'm ready to check out. (laughs) You know, I've, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been taking my lumps, I'm ready to go. Because it's going to be so much better to be in the presence of the Lord. But as long as I'm stuck here with you, I might as well pour into your lives. Because remember, the Philippian church was his partnering church in the gospel. And he said, I want to pour into your lives so that you can continue to grow in the likeness of Christ and you can share with me in the gospel as I go out and we can introduce more and more and more people to to Jesus Christ. Paul says, as long as I'm stuck with you and stuck here on earth waiting for something so much better, the presence of the Lord, then I know what I'm about. And that is the proclamation of the gospel.
Uh, do you remember a few years ago, uh, this is a big fad, I think it was in the 90s, there, there were t-shirts came out all over, you know, hockey is life, soccer is life, uh, quilting is life, whatever, right? The rest is just <laughs> details, right? Which is, you know, it's like the epitome of shallowness. My hobby is life. What, you know, no, it's not. It's not. How would Paul answer the question? He would say this, Christ is life. Christ is life. Everything else is just details. Christ is the center. He brings meaning. You know, our, our families, our jobs, our houses, education, I'm not saying those are unimportant. I'm saying they're not central. Christ is life. Christ is the center. And then those other things take on meaning in relationship to Jesus Christ. Separate from Christ, they don't have meaning and significance. It is through those things and those relationships, our jobs, the use of our house, that we are transformed into the image of Christ and that we share Christ with others. That's why those things have meaning for each and every one of us. For each and every one of us. To live is Christ. And so that's my prayer for us this semester as we're plowing our way through the rest of Romans that Christ would more and more and more take that center place in our lives and we would see that these other things have meaning around Christ. And so I'm going to give you a couple application points for this week. First, read Romans 1 through 7. Reread if you haven't gone through it. If you want to read the whole book, great. This is kind of like you know, bare minimum homework assignment. Romans 1 through 7. Uh, review those first six chapters, maybe take some notes, uh, solidify some of the lessons learned, get into Romans 7. Um, and then having read those chapters, I want you to identify one area that you would like to see God move in your life and change you this semester. You let God's spirit speak through his word. Find one area. God, teach me to apply the principles of Romans 6, 7, and 8 to this area of my life. And now, related to that, in the process of transformation, God has given us several uh, resources or tools. One of those is we, we gather on Sunday mornings, we worship together, we pray and we praise together. But another really significant resource is other believers in Christ. Hey, Paul took incredible encouragement from the Philippians because they were walking with him on this pathway, proclaiming the gospel. And I want to encourage you uh, don't stay disconnected. Uh, Brad alluded uh, in the announcements to this little handout. We've got a lot of opportunities for you to get connected with other believers, uh, or you may know of some. If you're a student on campus, there may be dorm Bible study or uh, study with Campus Crusade or NAVS or InterVarsity or Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Find something, okay? whether it's other believers on campus, in your neighborhood, a home church group, an adult Bible fellowship. We are not designed to walk for a lifetime faithfully with Jesus Christ alone. So I encourage you, don't remain disconnected this semester. Uh, students, especially, I know sometimes uh, you come back a new semester and you don't immediately get plugged in, whether it's to a church or to a Bible study, and you drift for the semester, don't do that. Get plugged in quickly with other believers. We need one another. And it is my prayer that more and more as Christ becomes central, this body of believers, we, we would not just draw together, but that we would be a bright light in this community for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are righteous. I thank you that you are, are right in all that you say and all that you do. I thank you that we can trust you even when we can't fully understand you. 
I thank you, Father, that you've proven that you do right by us by giving us your son, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that increasingly uh, we would see that, that uh, all of life takes on meaning when Christ is central. I pray that you protect us from the, the world's foolish answers of what brings meaning. And I pray, Father, for each and every uh, man and woman here this morning, that you would draw them close to your presence. And I pray that you would give us opportunities to proclaim your gospel this semester. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.